it's saying 462. 462. Oh, gracious God our Father, we thank thee for thy word. Also, sing number three sixteen, three one six. We are by Christ redeemed. Oh. 
Gracious God and our Father, how wonderful it is to be able to sing these words in your presence, to speak of our redemption in Christ, your beloved Son. Give you thanks that we have this blessed hope in front of us, that though these vessels may break, though outwardly we may be perishing, we know that inwardly we're being renewed day by day and that Christ, our precious dust, will take and freshly mold. Now give these bodies vile a fashion like his own. He'll bid the whole creation smile and hush its groan. We can confess our God that creation is groaning even now. And we too who have the spirit are groaning also, as we eagerly await the time where we will see you, where we'll be in your presence, that we'll be forever with the Lord. We want to give you thanks for this opportunity we have to sit under the teaching of your word, Lord. We're grateful for our brother, Steve Campbell, that you brought to us. We're thankful for his willingness and that he's made himself available to serve the saints. We're grateful for safety as he's traveled far from home and driving around South Florida, blessing those he comes into contact with. We're thankful also just to remember our brethren in Brooksville and Tampa and Orlando and uh, throughout Florida, Fort Lauderdale. We're grateful, God, for all the saints. And we pray that you would bless our time tonight. Give us open hearts, open ears to receive what you have for us. So we just lay our hearts before you, Lord, in worship and in adoration. Shape us and mold us, we pray. May your name be glorified mm -hmm. in all that's said tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 <laughs> I just want to say how grateful I am to be able to be in the room with you this evening. Uh, it's really a great privilege to see you and to be with you, uh, especially because I know that 
Uh, you're not normally thinking of uh, being together on a Friday evening. And uh, so for all those reasons, uh, it's, it's extra special to be able to share some time with you. Also, I um, am bringing greetings from those uh, who are gathering together in Orlando and in Brooksville, uh, where I was able to visit on Wednesday and Thursday this week as well. Uh, and in addition, those at Grace and Truth Chapel in Mawa, New Jersey, where our family fellowships, they've sent their greetings also. Um, it's a good thing that uh, I only had to check one suitcase because I'm running out of room with all the greetings that I'm delivering, but I'm very happy uh, to do so. Um, we're going to turn to the book of Galatians. Um, I appreciate the prayer for the, the drive here. Um, I was uh, visiting a friend actually at lunchtime uh, in, in Venice on the other coast. And so I uh, realized I needed to get some gas. And, you know, it's always a little bit, we, we put so much faith in our GPS these days, right? I, I asked the GPS where the gas station was and uh, it brought me right to the gas station. It was the one that was under renovation and had absolutely no gas pumps open. So I asked it where the next one was and it brought me to uh, one of those convenience stores that, uh, you know, usually has uh, gas as well. And so I pulled up at the convenience store and this one only had a convenience store, no gas. So uh, I got bad information. It was uh, rather frustrating, but I was happy to be able to. Then I started wondering, maybe I should drive, you know, forward and where I'm supposed to go driving east. Um, then I realized, I don't think this road has gas stations on it. So I had to turn back around uh, it's a little stressful if you want to know the truth, but uh, it's nice to be able to be here this evening. I would like to read a little bit from the epistle to the Galatians. Uh, it's a very unique epistle for a lot of reasons. And um, I would like to sort of set the stage as we read a little bit uh, in the beginning of this letter and then look at some of the results, some of the effects of what the beginning of this letter lead to a little later uh, in, in this writing. When I was young, before I start to read, I'll just remember, give, share this memory as well. When I was young, uh, my brother and I, we, we would uh, often kind of sort of evaluate how things went when we were on the way home from, you know, a meeting together and in the chapel. And uh, a lot of times, one of the things we would speak about was how long that brother prayed, because it was our custom where we were um, to stand. The whole congregation would stand when someone would pray. And so we're all standing, you know, and uh, wow, I think he went for 10 minutes this time. You know, we'd be saying to each other. But the reason I share that is, could you imagine being together uh, in the, one of the churches of Galatia? Galatia is not a city. Galatia is a region. And uh, here in the region of Galatia, it seems, if you look at uh, the end of verse 2, uh, this letter is addressed from Paul uh, to the churches, plural, of Galatia. This is the only New Testament epistle that's addressed to churches, plural. Um, and so it's likely that this letter got, you know, distributed around to the region. If you want to think of, you know, uh, an area where a lot of different gatherings of believers were, um, a province, a state, maybe a province or a state would be a little too large, but you know, this area where people were gathered together in this city or that city of Galatia. And somebody would come and say, today I brought Paul's letter. You might have heard it was over at that other uh, congregation. And now I've got the letter. We're going to read this letter. And just imagine you'd be sitting in the meeting room or in a home probably in those days. And, and somebody would start reading. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul. And you'd, you'd read the whole letter. You'd be sitting for 20 or 30 minutes listening to somebody read out loud this letter, a letter that was divinely inspired. When we pick up this book, we're touching something eternal. We're touching something that God himself wants us to know. And so this is Paul writing to the, the region of Galatia. They had regional concerns. You know, he wrote to the Christians in Corinth, and he wrote to the Christians in Philippi, and to the Christians in Colossae. He had different uh, reasons for writing. Each letter has kind of its own flavor, its own purpose. All of them are so important for us to appreciate as well. But here in this, in this, this was a regional um, set of concerns that, that existed here in, in Galatia. 
And so that's one of the things that makes this letter unique. He, he's writing to a group of Christians that all have the same experience and all have the same challenge. And I suppose that's kind of a nice thing for us because we realize that in our circumstances, we with other believers, we have similar challenges and similar needs and similar concerns. And so it's okay that we recognize that we are not alone in our concerns and our challenges because this is a regional letter. And of course, the word of God is well suited for all of God's people in all the places and at all times that they would read it. But when Paul begins to read, uh, begins to write to the churches of Galatia, he starts out in verse six by saying that he's amazed. I marvel, he says, reading from the New King James Version, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Some translations there say to another gospel, but verse seven clarifies, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. It's, it's an interesting little study in just that word, another. Uh, the, the, the language in which Paul was writing, the Greek language had two different words for another, and one meant um, another of the same kind. You know, you could have this chair, or you could have the red chair, you could have the blue chair, you could have a chair that's a different shape, but a chair is a chair. But there was also a word for another of a completely different kind. You know, a chair is not a giraffe. Uh, you can sit on a giraffe and you can sit on a chair, but it's not the same thing. And he says here, you've turned to a different gospel, something that is not the same. It is not similar. It is something that's different. There are those who are troubling them. And what he begins to say to them is, I really want you to have confidence in the message of the gospel that you have first believed. And we'll just look at some of the reasons why he says that to them, kind of skimming through chapter one and chapter two of Galatians. He wants them to be built firmly upon the foundation of the facts, the truth of the gospel that they have already believed. We sometimes have the impression, or maybe unfortunately give the impression, that, you know, we, we, have, these, uh, we have these beliefs, and, um, you know, we can sort of uh, modify them, massage them, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, figure out sort of what they really mean and how important they are based on how we feel about them at the time. But Christianity is built on a set of declarative statements of certainty and truth. When you look through the New Testament and you see how many times it says, we know that this is true. We know that that is true. And this is what Paul is going to tell them. You have already received the truth. It might almost sound a little audacious what Paul says uh, to them in, in, verse, um, in verse 8, for example, just looking here, verse chapter 1, verse 8. Even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Paul says the gospel message that already came to you through his preaching. He has been in the region of Galatia. He's gone through this region. He personally brought the gospel to them. He says the message that came to you at that time, that was the truth. That sounds very, as I said, very audacious. Paul, aren't you kind of putting a lot of confidence in yourself as the one who's delivering truth to us? Does such a thing deserve to be said so boldly? But this is what he says as he goes through these next uh, several passages that we'll kind of look at. I'd like to read a little bit, uh, extended uh, some verses in chapter one and chapter two. I'll read a few comments and, and make a few comments uh, after we read. Verse 11, he says, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. 
and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I may preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. Chapter two. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. And then just jump down to verse six. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised, for circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Now, I know that's kind of a long section, but it really is one flowing theme. And its purpose is to support this declaration that Paul says to the Galatian Christians about why it is that they should stand firm on the gospel message and the teachings of Christianity in the way it was first delivered to them. They should resist anything that would distract them and disturb them and, and move them sideways away from the gospel truth that was given to them. Because the fact is, and this I would suggest is maybe some, a theme we could hold on to this evening, the gospel message, the truth of Christianity is a heavenly message. We have heaven's message brought to us through the Lord Jesus, who taught his own, and it is declared to us. The writer to the Hebrews says, well, we know what this word is. It came to us through Jesus Christ. He declared it to the apostles, and they taught it. This is not something that we're ha having to you know, study centuries later and hope that somebody got the details right. We have eyewitness testimony. We have first generation listeners who said, here's what I heard him say. Here's what the truth is. Here's what I know took place. I was there. The apostle John, when he writes in his gospel, he's at the death of Christ, at the resurrection. He says, the one who saw it is true. He is bearing witness to it and his witness is true. He's not using the first, first personal pronoun, right? Uh, he didn't say, I saw it, but that's what he's saying. I was there. I saw it. The gospel writer Luke, he writes in his gospel as well as in the book of Acts. He says, I have had so many conversations with eyewitnesses. I have gathered the evidence. I've put it together in an orderly fashion. And I'm setting it forth so that you will know the certainty of the things that are believed among us, writing to one person, but really writing to all those who would read that gospel and then the book of Acts. We have 
a divine message that is preserved for us, and it came from heaven. We have heaven's message given to us. And so what is Paul saying here? He says, uh, first of all, verse 11 and 12 of chapter 1, nobody taught me the gospel before I told you. I learned this gospel. I learned the teachings of Christianity by divine revelation. And as proof, he says, look, you know, I was not looking for Christian teaching. I was a persecutor of the church. I was not trying to find, you know, a, some, some uh, new knowledge and trying to become familiar with those who are following Jesus Christ. I was persecuting them. I, in fact, I was the best persecutor there was. Verse 14, I advanced in this beyond many of my contemporaries. I was more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. This is my identity. Sometimes if you read interpretations of Christian history, you find what I consider to be some very foolish statements about the Apostle Paul. It is sometimes said, well, you know, Paul, he was, when he was Saul of Tarsus, he, uh, he was getting to be kind of prominent in the Jewish religion. And then he saw that there was kind of a power vacuum uh, in, in the Christian church, those who were following the way uh, of Jesus. And he saw that, you know, he could maybe use his, his, uh, his enigmatic gifts and his, his, uh, his manner of, of communicating, and he could get some, you know, kind of fill that, fill that void, and he could become prominent. This is truly a foolish statement, because the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, he was surely prominent. He had, if that's what his goal was, he would have had all the attention he wanted. In fact, he got all the attention he wanted. The high priest knew Paul on a first name basis, right? The high priest gave him letters to go to Damascus. And when Paul became a leader and used by the Lord among Christians, did that make Paul suddenly popular and his life was easy? His life was harder than it ever had been. He did not have a lot of, you know, easy street kind of living. His life became difficult. We have record of all the things that he endured. Second Corinthians chapter 12, he says, well, I had labors and I had uh, hungers and I had fastings and I had shipwrecks. And he says he was three times shipwrecked. And that's even before the shipwreck of Acts chapter 27. So at least four times I've, I've said sometimes, you know, you ne never go on a cruise with the apostle Paul. He invites you to go sailing. You know, you might have to politely decline. He did not have it easy. And so he says, Point number one, this gospel that I brought to you, I did not learn it from other people. My identity was among those who were persecuting the Christians. But then God called him. And, you know, we, every one of us in this room who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, there was this moment when God called us through his grace. God knew Paul, before his birth, he separated Paul unto him from his mother's womb, verse uh, 15. And then in time, God called him through his grace. What a tremendous display of grace that God has called us. And then he intends to reveal his son in us. And specifically in the apostle Paul, it was going to be an evidence of the complete transformation that had taken place. What could be used as, you know, figure number one, evidence number one, when you uh, submit your uh, research papers to your uh, teachers and professors when your school days, you know, you, you have to make sure you have some supporting documents, some data that supports your, your statements, and you're going to present the data. Paul is... Exhibit number one, look at what was done in his life for no human benefits, but for his spiritual conformity to Christ himself. This is what God intends for each of us. And so then he says, when this took place, I did not go around asking people what the gospel was. I did not go around having a, you know, con conferences with people. I did not confer with flesh and blood. I didn't go to Jerusalem. I knew Christians were there in Jerusalem. He knew, uh, no doubt, who Peter was and who John was. 
He was there at the stoning of Stephen. He knew who the prominent leaders among uh, the way, as they called it in those days, he knew who the prominent leaders were. But he didn't go back to Jerusalem. He had been in Damascus. He had that visit from Ananias. Ananias, it's my favorite part maybe of that whole chapter where Ananias comes to him and says, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, who appeared to you, has sent me. And, you know, it would have been just fine if the Lord gave Paul a commission. But there would not have been that personal connection with those who already were believers. And we remember how fearful Ananias was. And Ananias comes into the place where Paul is, and he says, Brother Saul. And, you know, I think Saul never forgot that because I think it's Acts chapter 26, maybe it's chapter 22. One of the times where he's referring, uh, recounting this uh, experience to the Roman officials, he says, and Ananias came to me and he called me Brother Saul. I think that never left his memory. Those warm-hearted, beautiful words. It's a tremendous statement that we can look at one another and say, we're family. We are united together by the work of Christ. But when, when Paul had this experience, he says, I didn't go to Jerusalem. I stayed in Damascus. He'd been uh, brought into this, uh, uh, this, this act of fellowship, this declaration of fellowship through Ananias. And he says, I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then it was three years before he went to Jerusalem. Now, sometimes it is said that he was three years in Arabia. I, I don't know for sure that we have that to be said with certainty. We don't know how long he was in Arabia. Um, I tend to think that he was in Arabia less than three years because uh, we're told when he's back in Acts chapter nine after his conversion, we don't have reference to him being in Arabia, but we do have reference to him being in Damascus for many days. And so it seems perhaps more likely that, you know, he, he, he had this time, he, he was converted, he waited in Damascus, Ananias comes, Praise for him. Um, Saul is baptized. He's brought among the believers. And then God brings him out separately. It's in Arabia, as we are understand, understanding the text here. It's in this time alone where, by divine instruction, he is given the truths of the gospel. And then he goes back to Damascus. He tells us that. I returned to Damascus. And when he was in Damascus, he was preaching publicly. He was convincing many. He was drawing such attention to himself that finally, not, not, not for pride, but for the fact that he was preaching Christ, that finally the, the governor of the city put out a death warrant and he had to be delivered by being put into a basket and let down over the wall so he could escape with his life. A little side note, it's not wrong to want to be safe, right? The apostle Paul says, if I stay here, I might die. I don't think I want to die yet. If the Lord brings me to the end of my life, well, okay, but I'm going to try to be safe. And there is every uh, piece of evidence in the scriptures that it is appropriate for us to want to be safe so we can continue to serve the Lord. If the Lord shows us something different, well, then, okay. But Paul says, I'm not going to stay. Actually, the disciples, they said, Paul, you're not going to stay. Leave. And he left and he ended up in Jerusalem. And he sees Peter, and he's there for approximately two weeks. He's there for 15 days, and he did not have a lot of conversations with the other apostles. He only saw James, who's identified here as the Lord's brother. We believe this is the author of the book of James that we have in the New Testament. We would probably say this is the Lord's half-brother, right? He was born of Mary and Joseph. Our Savior was born of Mary, born of a woman, but he was the divine son of God. He was not the son truly of, uh, really at all, of Joseph. Joseph had nothing to do with his birth. His father was, uh, was God overall, his father in heaven. But here he says that he, these are the people that he saw. And then he's gone again. He goes to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. They didn't know him. He didn't go to a place where he was well known already. They just heard that, that he's now a preacher instead of a persecutor. And then it was 14 years before he gets back to Jerusalem again. And when he's there, he has some private 
conversations. He has conversations. We're told we're identified. Uh, these people are identified. Verse 9, James and Cephas or Peter and John, they um, have these conversations with, with the Apostle Paul. And he says, here's what I'm preaching. So Paul, on the one hand, he has learned the truths of Christianity by divine revelation. And at the same time, he compares notes, we might say, with the other apostles, those who were in Jerusalem before him, apostles who walked in person with the Lord Jesus bodily here on earth. And he says, they saw we were preaching the same message. Were they preaching the same message because Paul learned it from them? That's what Paul is saying. I did not learn it from them. They did not add something to me. But on the other hand, we were preaching the same message. And so we learn with confidence that when we have the biblical message of the truths of Christianity, we have reliable teaching. Because when God gave the message to James and Peter and John and the other apostles, and then he gave it separately to the apostle Paul, where were the divergences? There were none. The message was the message. We can have certainty that the message is the heavenly message. We have the heavenly revealed word of God that we believe, that we are standing upon, that we have with certainty in our hearts and in our minds, and that we walk uh, carrying that message in this world. And so he is, he's saying, I, 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 it was private. We just had a little private conversation. I'm not a lone ranger. You know, there, there are some who want to be lone rangers, as we say, and they just want to sort of go their own way. Paul didn't say, I'm not talking to anybody. My message is my message. No, he had these conversations. It was important to compare what was being said. But the only difference was not one of content. It was not a difference of information. It was a difference of, of, of ministry, a difference of, of participation. Paul was preaching mostly to Gentiles. We know he preached in Jewish audience as well, or, or sometimes in mixed audiences. These other believers, like Peter, were mostly preaching to Jewish audiences. We know that Peter preached to Gentile audiences as well. But for the most part, that was the kind of ministry that they had received. And so there was a perception. They said, Paul, we can see that God is using you among the uncircumcised. Praise the Lord. You go ahead and carry on. And Paul says, I can see that the Lord is using you among the circumcised. Praise the Lord. Let's keep on working in our corners of the vineyard. We're just going to keep on going where the Lord has put us. And this also is very valuable for us. What the Lord has given us to do, let us do it. Let us move forward. It is not audacious. It is not uh, you know, self-seeking to say, here's what I think the Lord wants me to do. Paul said, I know what the Lord wants me to do. James, the person that he mentions uh, here in verse 19, might be the same James in verse 9 of chapter 2, or might be James the Apostle. But James, in his epistle, chapter 3, he says, uh, you know, there are some who are teachers. And then he uses the pronoun we. We are teachers. He, he knew what he was supposed to do. He knew his task. He knew his calling. He knew his gift. Philip was an evangelist. He knew who he was. He knew he was supposed to be an evangelist. When we speak sometimes um, about the, the, the need for humility, which is essential for Christian service, we sometimes, uh, it, it sometimes is said that uh, to be humble, we should not think about ourselves at all. And I understand what is meant, right? We, we make much of Christ when we are humble. We don't make much of ourselves. But we should be careful and to be clear, when, when it is said that way, we don't mean that we have no plans. We don't mean that we have no sense of how God is, is using us and guiding us and directing us. Paul is saying, he said in many letters, I, I want to go here. I want to serve the Lord there. I want to get to Rome. I want to come to Corinth. He knew who he was. He knew what God wanted him to do. And, and we can hold that certainty, hold that truth, not because we want to you know, satisfy some kind of egotistical need for ourselves to get more attention, but because the God of glory has given us divine revelation. He gave us the message from heaven. 
And that message deserves to be presented to those who need to hear it. So I said that if we have the heavenly message, there are some effects. And just very briefly, I'm just going to point out a couple of effects that we can appreciate when we realize that we have a heavenly message. I'll be a little briefer in these points and just kind of present them for your consideration. First of all, in Galatians chapter 3, verse, um, we'll read verse 3, verse 2. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The Galatians were in danger. Paul is writing to them because they needed to have a greater degree of confidence and certainty in the truth of the first presentation of the gospel message and the teachings of Christianity, the principles that, uh, that had brought them to faith, the principles upon which their faith uh, was resting. And there were those who, like it says in verse one of chapter three, who were bewitching them. So they were not being steadfast in the truth. And one of the ways in which uh, these distractions were being presented was it was said to them, so you Galatians, you say you're Christians, you could be a better Christian tomorrow if you get circumcised today. If you kind of latch on to all the Jewish traditions that uh, are part of our experience, those who grew up in Jewish heritage homes, uh, then you'll be even a better Christian. And so we begin to see this development of rules and checklists and the idea that there's you know, the, the common Christian and the elite Christian. And this is very, very dangerous. And it was being presented, actually, as if it was the only truth of the gospel. It was the, the undeveloped truth. It was the, the secret hidden truth. And they were turning away from the plain truth of the gospel. But what he says to them here is, you could evaluate this. When you came to Christ, was it through the work of the Spirit? Or because you earned it yourself by the activity of your own person? Well, that's obvious, right? We all can say, I came to Christ by the work of the Spirit of God in my heart. The Galatians would have said the same. We sang those beautiful words about God who has given us his Spirit so we can understand his truth. And by the Spirit, we walk in the Christian life. And so he puts this question to the Galatians. When you began your walk with Christ, was it through the Spirit? Or was it by your own efforts? Oh, of course, Paul, it was by the Spirit of God. He says, well, why do you think you're going to have Christian maturity any other way? And when we learn, when we have certainty that the truth of the gospel is that heavenly message, then we don't use earthly methods to improve our spiritual standing, to bring us along faster in spiritual growth. We live by faith. We live by the hearing of faith, and this is how God is going to continue to work among us. Uh, Chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 5, just look at the end of the verse there, that we might receive the adoption as sons, the adoption as sons, and this term is very prominent in some parts of the scriptures. The Apostle John refers to this, uh, this idea of, uh, sorry, not the Apostle John, the Apostle Paul refers to this in in Romans as well, that we have the adoption uh, of sons. And this idea of adoption in in Ephesians also, um, and this idea of adoption, when we picture adoption, you know, we picture that somebody, you know, goes to an adoption agency and and looks at the different possibilities and and says, well, I, I think we will adopt this child. We we want to show love to this child, and it's, it's really a wonderful uh, thing when that can take place. But, but in, in the New Testament times, the, the word adoption, it's really one word, adoption as sons. It really is the idea of sonship. You may receive the declaration of sonship. You may be called sons, and this is true for every believer 
It's got nothing to do with maleness and femaleness. It has to do with the dignified adult standing of a responsible son of the house. Because you would be a child and you'd have a tutor and the tutor would be training you. But then when you were finally old enough, you would be declared the son of the house and you would have full adult standing and full responsibility and full privileges as an adult among the others of the house. And this teaching of sonship is very uh, significant for us as believers. It means God has declared us in full, um, in, in full dignity and in full responsibility and in full blessing as those who are receiving his inheritance, those who are receiving the blessings of being associated with the son who is over God's house. We are brought into that same position. We are declared we have a heavenly message and that heavenly message tells us walk in faith, chapter three, and it tells us we are in a dignified, glorious, blessed relationship with the God who has declared us sons. Chapter five, verse, let's start with verse uh, 13. You, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the spirit and you should not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And verse 25, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit or keep in step with the spirit. It's a little different word in verse 25. I read a little bit more than really the one thought I would like to just sort of emphasize as, as a third point here. By love, serve one another. The liberty of the Christian message is one that Paul is emphasizing. Stand fast, chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Live the faith life. Live the life, the sonship life. Live the liberty life, but don't misuse these blessings. Don't use freedom and liberty and blessing as an opportunity to push yourselves forward, you Galatian Christians, because evidently in the region of Galatia, this was a problem. They were pushing themselves forward, elbowing for position, and they were devouring one another. If we try to push ourselves forward, we're going to be trampling on our brethren. And he says, if that's the way you live your Christianity, there won't be any of you left. Beware lest you be consumed by one another. The gospel is going to endure. It's the heavenly message. But your testimony, you Galatian Christians, your testimony is just going to disappear. You're going to eat each other up. It won't even be the attacks from the world. It'll just be the attacks internally. And Paul had said this to the Ephesians too. He had said, I know that there are going to be wolves attacking you from the outside, Acts chapter 20, but from your own selves, some are going to rise up and draw people away after themselves. I think that broke his heart to imagine that these Christians that he loved might start to behave that way with one another. And he says this to the Galatians also. By love, serve one another. I heard a brother say, so what's your spiritual gift? He's talking to an audience of young people. He didn't wait for an answer. He was just trying to make a point. He said, you might not know your spiritual gifts, but what's the purpose of all the spiritual gifts? It's to serve fellow believers. We learn this in 1 Peter chapter 4. Your gift is not for yourself. It's for, the, there's the speaking gifts, one broad category, and there's the serving gifts. Two broad categories of Christian gifts, spiritual gifts. And Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, it's for other people. It's for the rest of the family, the household of faith. And 
the person who is telling this, uh, you know, speaking about these spiritual gifts to these young people, he said, if you don't know your spiritual gift, you know what you could do? Just skip straight to love. love. Because you know what? It's going to be the same outcome. And I thought it was so beautiful when he said, just, just skip straight to love. Because we know that if the spiritual gifts that we are given are not exercised in love, they're useless. First Corinthians chapter 13. And if we skip straight to love and we do things for the fellow believers that are motivated by love, we're going to be serving them. And you know what? We'll be using our spiritual gifts because God will use us. He's doing things in us that, so that he can do things through us. And so we come to this thought again about walking in the spirit. It's the spirit warring against the flesh. The Galatians were attracted by the possibility that they might get a little extra attention if they would become prominent. The Apostle Paul, as if to say, listen, I've been prominent. I was well known among my contemporaries. That is not where it was at. God wants to reveal his son in me. And that's what he says to every one of us. We are holding in our hands this heavenly message. And we want to be, have, be, have it absorbed into us by the work of the spirit of God so that the intention that God has for us comes out so that he can reveal his son in us so that we can live the faith life and the sonship life and the, the serving life by love. And that heavenly message will not ever, how do I want to say it? It will, it will never therefore be empty. It will always accomplish what God intends when it is worked out in congregations of believers, believers who love each other, who know the truth of God's word and build one another up. And, you know, as a, as a region, whatever region we want to define ourselves, uh, wherever we, God's people find themselves, that region is in need of that heavenly message. We, we are weak and failing people on our own, every one of us, but by the work of the spirit of God in us, by forming his son in us, God will use us in our localities, in our families, in our local congregations and testimonies. It's a tremendous thing. It's a great privilege to be part of that heavenly calling, to have that heavenly message that is at work in us and through us to produce this beautiful outcome that Christ will be glorified in us. I believe one of the local brethren to close the meeting. Amen. Amen.